Gospel, chapter 5, beginning at verse 33 through 39. I have a question. What is Jesus' attitude... As we have been studying the past several weeks, what is Jesus' attitude towards the outcasts of that society? Is his attitude one of contempt or one of compassion? Compassion. 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 He says, I came not to save the righteous, but who? Sinners. He looks into our life. He sees the desperateness of it all. He sees our desperate need, even though we don't always see it. And he comes into our life, and he begins a work, and that work of healing, and that work of saving. And so Jesus has compassion on the outcasts. And as the Gospels and the Gospel writers make that point clear. They write of three incidences in the beginning of Jesus' Galilean ministry. The first is the cleansing of the leper. Leprosy was symbolic of what? Sin. And so if you had a skin disease, whether it was real leprosy or some other skin disease, you were considered leprous and therefore you were not acceptable in the society. You were ceremonially unclean. It wasn't so much a matter that you were contagious, but you were ceremonially unclean. You were unacceptable. And because leprosy is symbolic of sin, sin separates. In any kind of relationship, at any, at any level of relationship, does not sin separate in the context of that relationship? If you sin against a, a spouse, if you sin against a friend, in uh, that relationship, there is then distance in that relationship. So sin separates. And the only thing that can, can bring about a, a, a reconciliation or healing is what? Forgiveness, the granting of, and the receiving of forgiveness. And so in Israel, leprosy was, was symbolic of that which separates, and the greater picture is that which separates man from God, sin. And so when Jesus comes on the scene in Galilee and the leper cries out to him, you can, you can heal me, you can cleanse me if you are willing, Jesus says what? No, you're unclean. I don't want to have anything to do with you. You're outcast. How dare you approach me? You're not welcome here. Jesus says, no, I'm willing. Be cleansed. Be healed. And you see him reaching out in the most dramatic fashion in the face of all of those who are around him, listening and following and so forth. I mean, that's an electric moment. And it's a statement that, of, of, of Jesus' purpose for coming, and that is to receive those to himself who have been rejected and who are the outcasts in society. And even in their own minds, they are outcasts. Even in their own minds, they're unworthy. Oh, I'm not worthy. That's right, none of us are worthy. None of us are worthy. 
That's what makes his grace so awesomely wonderful. Because he reaches to us. He reaches to us. The second instance is the healing of the paralytic. Now remember, behind disease, behind uh, paralysis, behind infirmities, behind these kinds of tragedies in life, the mindset was, and to some degree still is, well, there must be some sin. Because if, you, if there isn't some sin, you would be okay. So imperfection, frailty, weakness, brokenness, must be as a result of sin. That was the attitude. That's the prevailing attitude. And again, in the church even today, people are experiencing some significant measure of difficulty and, and the legalists in our midst automatically jump to the conclusion, well, there must be some sin in that person's life. Not necessarily. There was no sin in Job's life that we're aware of. And yet the things that happen to him, as God pulls the curtain back and gives us a little bit of visibility of that realm, wholly different purposes for Job's suffering. But here's a paralytic being let down through the roof of Peter's house. What was going through the minds of all those people sitting in there? What was going through the mind of the guy that was on there? Well, I hope they don't drop me. I mean, he probably had a sense, he probably had some measure of felt guilt, whether it was real or imagined, because of the prevailing thought of the society. Well, I'm this way because there must be some hidden sin. Are you with me? So not only does he have to bear the weight of this infirmity, but he also probably has to carry the, 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 the guilt, whether there was real guilt or not, we don't know. And that's got to weigh him down. And so he's lowered down through the roof, and what does Jesus say to him? What does he say? Your sins are forgiven. But before he says your sins are forgiven, he says something else. He says, take heart. Take heart. Those are two very significant words. Why? Because here's a man, presumably, who is uh, weighed down, burdened with guilt and or grief. And Jesus says, take heart. Be encouraged. Your sins, all of them at this moment, are forgiven. What a relief, huh? What a relief. And then he heals him of his paralysis. Again, a picture of Jesus reaching out, showing compassion to what? A sinner. One who was rejected. One who's an outcast in that culture. Everybody would be judging this guy. Everybody would be looking at his life. Well, you know, if you hadn't sinned, you wouldn't be a paralytic. You wouldn't have this problem. Or if your parents hadn't sinned before, before you were born or some, some, some such situation. But the, the great example of Jesus' compassion is in the calling of Levi. We looked at last week. I love this. I love this passage. For here's Levi, the most hated, most rejected person in that society. Why is he rejected and why is he hated? Because he's a tax collector. Not just because he's a tax collector, because he's a Jewish tax collector for the Roman Empire. He's a traitor. And he's, he's extorting money from his own countrymen and making a profit. 
How would you like to be ripped off knowingly and you can't do anything about it by someone who's of your own countryman, your own brother, if you will? Would that sit well with you? Would, that, would you say, oh, well, that's okay, it's fine. I can live with that. No, you'd be infuriated every time you came to that. Even just you think about it. It'd burn you up, tighten your jaw. True? So you can understand how Levi, Matthew, is one of the most hated people in Israel. And Jesus, walking along the Sea of Galilee there, along the shore, crowded around by all sorts of people, teaching, comes upon Levi, sitting at his, what, tax collector's booth, tallying up the day's take, counting his shekels, can you just picture this? And Jesus says, Oh, you filthy tax collector. You disgusting wretch of a tax collector. You rip off people. You're unjust and unrighteous. You're in service of the Roman Empire. Does he say that? No, what does he say? He says what? Follow with me. You remember from last week, those of you who are here? And he doesn't just invite him, he commands him. Follow with me. Come on with me. Whoa. Here's someone who's saying, come with me, be with me, come on. we got more important work to do than what you're doing right now. And Levi gets up and does it. But what does is, what is all this show? It shows Jesus' attitude towards the outcasts. It shows Jesus' attitude towards what? Sinners. Those who are separated. Those who are separated. We don't very often view ourselves as being separated. Most of us are very socially acceptable, are we not? Most of us are, 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 are in. We're hip. We're cool. We live in nice neighborhoods. Most of us are not discriminated against in any significant fashion. If you're part of white, middle-class America, which the vast majority of people are, it's very, very, very difficult to get in touch with this concept of separation of being an outcast person, of being unacceptable. Now, all of us intrapersonally, inside, we struggle with feelings of acceptance to one degree or another. We, own, we struggle with feelings of value and purpose. And we are taught very early on to strive very hard to work very hard to jump through the appropriate hoops to say the right things to portray the right kind of image, and if we do, and if we mind our P's and Q's, then guess what? We'll fit in with everybody else who is jumping through all the right hoops and minding all their P's and Q's. Am I right? And we pass that mentality on to the next generation, and the next generation, and the next generation. We become nothing more than succeeding generations of legalists. And we expect other people to perform according to our standards. And if they don't perform according to our standards, we don't accept them. 
It's hard for us. It's hard for us. It's hard for the church today, and it has been historically hard for the church to be able to welcome and love sinners. I mean, real sinners. Not just our kind of sinners. You know, not bad sinners. I've heard testimonies and things in people's lives that would make your head swim. Things that, that you would say, you've done what? It would just amaze you with the stuff that's gone on in people's lives. And yet the, the veneer is very respectable. You'd never suspect. But people are terribly afraid and terribly ashamed of their lives. And the church does not always project an image to the world that wherever we are, that we are on the lookout for those who are the outcasts and we're reaching out and touching them and saying, it's good to see you. It's good to have you with us. Come. We want you to be part. And you kind of got to look past this, the, the sin. You got to kind of look past that stuff and draw people into fellowship. And as you draw them into fellowship and they start rubbing elbows with other Christians who are growing in Jesus. And then someone says, well, let's read the Bible together and, and let's get on our knees together. And all of a sudden, some new dynamic comes into play in their life. And, and, and they begin to, to, to open up and, and respond to God's changing grace in their life. And it's, it's wholly different than they expected. Church, going to church. What does that give you a picture of in your mind? Just going to church. Most people, it's rigidity, judgmental, a duty, boring, <laughs> on and on and on. Isn't that true? Most people don't, when they think about going to church, when you invite them to church, I love, I love Friday night church. I love Friday night church, and, and most of you know about our Friday night service. And, and people will invite their friends and stuff to church on Friday night. And they say, church on Friday night? I invite guys at the health club. Uh, I, say, I work out on Friday morning, so I'll say, what are you doing tonight, by the way? And, you know, most of these guys are just jocks and party animals and cool dudes and this stuff, you know. And they said, well, I don't know. I've got nothing really planned. I said, why don't you come to church tonight? What? <laughs> come to church on Friday night? Are you serious? I mean, something just say come to church, but on Friday night? But we don't always think that church can be a party. Church can be fun. Fellowship can be exciting. It can be a place where truly you can begin to understand what it means to be valued and accepted and welcome, no matter what's going on in your life. And that healing process, once you begin to allow yourself to be permeable, permeable to the process, that healing process begins to take its effect in your life. Am I right? So Jesus welcomes who? Sinners. Now, he doesn't expect these guys, he doesn't ask the paralytic to perform. He doesn't ask the paralytic to repent. He doesn't even say to the leper, repent. 
And he certainly doesn't say to Levi, repent. He says, come on. Come on. The call, the invitation always precedes repentance. The repentance happens in the context of community. In the context of a safe, warm environment where people feel, I'm accepted. These people aren't so bad. They're friendly. They're just like me. Wow! And they're drawn in. They're drawn in. They're drawn in. They're drawn in. And then somewhere along the line comes what? Repentance. Somewhere along the line comes the acknowledgement, you know, I am a sinner. And I do need God's forgiveness. And these people have provided an environment that makes it possible for me to know these things and to admit them. Can anybody here relate to what I'm talking about? A few of you. Okay, good. This section is still a little bare. <laughs> I want you to read the passage with me. Remember, Jesus is in Levi's house. He's, he's, in, he's, he's commanded Levi. Levi's left his tax collector's desk. He's going to walk with Jesus. And he's astounded at, at the relationship of the offer, the acceptance, and all that. And so he says, we're going to have a party tonight. I want you to come to my house, and I want all my friends to meet you. Now, who are Levi's friends? <laughs> who are our friends when we get saved? We don't know anybody in the church, right? So all of our friends are who? Other tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, liars, thieves, you name it. Just like we were. So all of our associates, we say, come on over to my house. We're going to have a party tonight. Gospel party. I want you to meet Jesus. So he has, he has a party. In the midst of the party, we saw from last week's passage uh, that the Pharisees and, and the teachers of the law uh, were also hanging out. You know, they always, they're always, you're going to see this with the rest of the Gospels, they just dog his heels and they nag at him and nag at him there that just legalist paramount. And so they... They won't confront Jesus yet, but they, they say to his disciples, in fact, they complained. They complained to Jesus' disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They don't have a category for this. Why are you guys, why are you even with these people? You're eating with them and you're drinking with them? How come you associate with them? Jesus, overhearing them, quotes the, the famous statement. He says, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but it's the sick who need the doctor. That's why I'm with them. They just don't know they're sick yet. They're so deep in denial. They're so deep in, in, in their lifestyle that, that and justifying it because of the rejection of the community, I've got to spend some time with them here. That's why we're eating and drinking with them. And then they next say to him in verse 33 of Luke's Gospel, chapter 5, they say to him, John's disciples often fast and pray. Now it's curious that the Pharisees would, would point to John's disciples as being exemplary. Are they, do, are they, do they hold a certain admiration for John the Baptist and his disciples? Really? No. But when it suits their purpose, they're going to draw this, their example in. So, well, John's disciples often fast and pray. And, and our disciples often fast and pray. 
But your disciples, your disciples are having too much fun. They're here partying. They're here eating and drinking with these sinners. How can you stand this, Jesus? Your disciples are too cheerful. They're just having too good a time. They just go on eating and drinking. And Jesus answered, Can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? Can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? The picture of a wedding. The picture of a joyous occasion. The picture of a joyous, wonderful relationship in which fasting would only diminish the joy, would it not? Jesus is, in effect, posing to them a common social situation, and he's relating to them his relationship to his own disciples. This is a time of rejoicing for us to be together. Fasting would be totally inappropriate right now. It would diminish their joy, diminish my joy, he says. He says, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And in those days, they will fast. They'll fast because of their grief and because of their mourning. And indeed, you see, when Jesus left, there was great mourning and great grief until the Holy Spirit came and filled them with power. Fasting. Do you know that Jesus is always aware? I mean, he's always on the money. He's always looking. He's always aware of what's going on around him. And he's always looking for an opportunity, a question, an issue, as it surfaces, to, to use it, to turn it around, and use it as a teaching tool. And he does this question, this, 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 this argument about fasting, this objection that his disciples are having too much fun, they should be fasting. Religious people, legalists, drives them nuts if you have too good a time in church. Just drives them nuts. I remember I got there were there was a couple in church that, that uh, I married them, and they were doing real good, and I was real pleased and watching their growth and so forth. And I thought I thought God's really blessing this the situation, and then uh, they moved, and they got hooked up with with this real rigid, real rigid legalistic church, and they got deeply immersed in some very, very severe legalism. And I got a letter from them, and I saw the return address and the name, and, and I said, oh, great, a letter, and I was excited to read it and hear how they were doing. And they just wrote me the most scathing letter about telling jokes in church, making people laugh. The church should be very serious business. What is serious business? But God doesn't mean for us to be somber about it. Come in here with old dour faces. Most of us do that enough as it is. <laughs> I want you leaving here thinking, that was real. That was real. I needed that. I don't want you leaving here whipping yourself because you're not performing well enough. Sometimes you do, and that's my fault. But the majority of the time, I would hope that you'd leave here feeling exhorted, challenged, 
thoughtful, reflective, hopeful, strengthened, blessed. And some feeling a little discomforted because of the foolishness in your life. But they wrote me this letter and I couldn't hardly get over it. And so I wrote him back and I said, I'm sorry you feel that way, but I think this is the way church ought to be. And they wrote me back another letter, even worse. And it was just a short time after that 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 they left that fellowship because they could not carry the weight of the legalistic requirements. They just couldn't bear it. It was too much. You see, we, we strive for holiness, don't we? We want to be righteous. We want to be holy. We want to be all the things that we think that we ought to be. And we want to be serious for God. And, and, and we're genuinely sincere. We're, we're very real about it. But we get caught up in our flesh. We get caught up in our own legalistic attitudes. And we, we completely lose sight of God's grace. And that our hope and our trust is in Him. God, you're working in my life. You're working in my life today. And it's only when you and I come in contact and embrace His grace that His grace works changes in our life. No other way. No other way. It's just like any other relationship. You can be in the worst possible place personally, emotionally, rationally, You can just be in an absolute cave. You can be just afraid to death. But there's somebody who's going to come and someone who's going to touch your life and someone who's going to love you and show you grace and kindness and compassion and who's going to woo you out of that cave. Isn't that true? They're going to draw you out of that cave. And you're going to, in little tentative steps, put your trust in them. Well, all right, I'll take another step. I'll take another step. And at some point, you're going to believe that that person really does care about you and you're going to trust them a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. Am I right? And when you come out of that cave and you come into the light of the day, how do you feel? How do you feel? More courageous? Better about yourself? More hopeful? Sure. Because there's somebody that you are confident who has shown you over and over and over and over that it matters not to them what you've done. They care for you. They care for you and they draw you out. And you begin to what? Respond to them. You begin to respond to them. Am I right? Now, are you working hard? He said, well, I have to be a good person. I have to be a good, good person. No, you don't have the wherewithal to be the kind of person that you long to be. You just don't have it. But it's that person's graciousness in your life, as it works in your life, as you begin to respond to it, you begin to experience the wonderful transformation that comes from grace. And you begin to respond back to this person. And it's not hard to be in relationship anymore. It's not hard to be loyal. It's not hard to be a friend. It's not hard to to support this person who has been so supportive of you. 
is it? It's easy. It's a delight. It's a joy. It's a joy. Jesus' disciples were joyful. And it was driving the legalist nuts. It was driving the legalist nuts. He was, they were eating and drinking with sinners. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. There is a certain feeling among some churched people. There is a certain feeling amongst some religious people that a person is not truly spiritual unless they are uncomfortable or unhappy. Somehow that, in a perverted sense, makes me spiritual. I'm, un, I'm, I'm uncomfortable. And One of the hallmarks of the Christian faith. If you look at Romans chapter 14, verse 17... Romans 14, 17, one of the hallmarks of the Christian faith is joy. 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 Paul, the Apostle Paul, remarks in that passage, he says, the kingdom of God is made up of what? Righteousness, peace, and joy. Righteousness, peace, and joy. One of the hallmarks of the Christian faith is joy. What's joy? Joy is that quality of deep and abiding pleasure or delight that must break out in exclamations of praise and thanksgiving. When joy wells up in you, when genuine joy... Understand, I'm not talking about frivolity. There is a certain solemnity to our faith, is there not? There is a seriousness to our faith. But within that context, we can know a joy that sometimes just must, must break out in exclamations of praise and thanksgiving. Oh, God, thank you. Thank you, Lord. You can be all by yourself. You can be in the midst of fellowship. But you're knowing joy. And you break forth. Some of you at the, at the offering this morning, you were in touch with that. And you dared, you dared to out loud say, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> you dared to out allow yourself to step outside of the norm. It was okay. You felt kind of good about it. Can you be accused, could your life be accused of being too joyful? Would the legalists of the church point to you and say, you're having too much fun in church. You're having too good a time. You should be more serious. Meaning you should be more dour. Can we be accused of being joyful people? Do people look at our lives and say, wow, what is it about you? I've seen you in this setting, in that seating. I've, I've seen you in, in, in trials and difficulties. 
which always seems so joyful. Why? Why? I would submit to you that the majority of Christian people today in America are not joyful. They're not full of joy, joyful. I would submit to you the majority of Christian people today in the church are legalists. They're performers. They're performing in order to be accepted. They're performing in order to be Christian. And they're not in touch with God's grace. How can I say that? Because I talk to so many people inside and outside the church. I see the ineffectiveness of the church in society to a large extent. I see the attitude of society toward the church as being irrelevant. When I know that down deep inside, people are longing to be loved. They're longing to be cared for. They're longing to be part of family. And that's what church ought to be, shouldn't it? But they don't see the church that way because, why? The church is not portraying, by and large, that kind of picture of a community that understands process. And that God's working. And that people, more than anything else, need to be encouraged in the process. So they can come to a place where they can finally admit whatever it is they need to admit. I find in my own life that there are times when I am not joyful. And when we're not joyful, all that says is that we are, we've just slipped back into our old legalistic modes. We've just slipped back into our old performance mentality. And I want to share with you five elements that are helpful to me to help me regain an appropriate perspective. I've got to remind myself, I've got to psych myself in a sense. I've got to say, wait a minute. Let's rethink this. Let's get back into the right frame of mind. I'm not talking about just having a positive mental attitude. I'm talking about rehearsing what's already true because when I do that, joy wells up in me. It's an automatic effect. The first thing I talk to myself about is I remind myself who God is. I say, now listen, who is God? Well, is he a, an old taskmaster? Or is he a gracious, loving father? Which is he? Gracious, loving father. He's a gracious and loving father. He's not a taskmaster that I must go through the checklist and meet all these little requirements in order to be accepted by him. He's a gracious and loving father. Now, there are lots of people in our society today who cannot relate with a father, who cannot relate with a gracious, loving father, because they never had one. But nonetheless, he is that. And if you're one of those people who can't relate in your prayer time, as you lay on your bed at night, just look up and say, God, I don't know what it means to have a gracious and loving father. I never had one. Help me. Help me. And you know what? He'll do it. He'll help you. He'll do a, a thing, flip some switches in your life. And nothing you can do about it except ask and just... Wait to receive it. 
And you'll begin to notice some, some changes in your life as God begins to make his grace known to you in that area. So I remind myself that old taskmaster. Secondly, I remind myself of his intention for me. What is God's intention for my life? Are his plans for me plans for good? Plans to bless, strengthen, encourage? Absolutely. Has he planned to be mean to me? Is he planning tricks for me? Is he saying, ha, how can I get him today? No, we do that for each other. How can I trick so-and-so? How can I make him feel foolish? How can I, how can I embarrass him? That's not God. God's intentions for me in my life, God's intentions for you in your life are such that he means for you to know the gladness of abundant and fruitful life. Abundant and fruitful life. And I'm not to, when I say that word abundant, don't misunderstand me. I'm not meaning he wants you to have lots of stuff. Abundant and fruitful life, the things that life is really all about. Love, peace, joy, faithfulness, gentleness, the kinds of things that, that really speak to abundant life and fruitful life. I look at my son and my intentions for my son is that he know the fulfillment, he know the gladness of that kind of life. And my Heavenly Father desires that for me. And when I think about those things, when I reflect on those things, when I rehearse those things, it leads to an attitude, a sense, a feeling of joy in me. There's a third element that's helpful to me as I contemplate all these things. And that third element is that my sins are forgiven. My sins are forgiven. My sins are forgiven. If you carry around with you unforgiven sin, there is always attendant to it, to some degree, a measure of guilt. Now, most of us do not like feeling guilty, and so we bury the guilt. We ignore it. We pretend like it doesn't exist. But guilt, whether it's buried or whether it's felt, always leads to fear. Fear of judgment, fear of rejection, fear, fear, fear. Fear rules our lives. And along with that comes feelings of condemnation. And along with that comes footholds, additional footholds for the devil in our life. But when I know and I realize and I rehearse the fact that my sins are forgiven then at that point I'm reminded and I rejoice because there are no feelings now, no sense of guilt, condemnation, and certainly no footholds for the devil in my life. And I rejoice, I'm thankful, I say, God, thank you. There's a fourth element. I'm not alone. I'm not alone. I roll out of the bed every morning, this morning, and that alarm went off at 5.30, and my eyes cranked open, slowly. <laughs> it's time already. <laughs> Seems like I just laid my head on the pillow just there last night. 
And I practice the discipline of every morning saying, God, thank you for today. Thank you that I'm not alone. Thank you that whatever you have planned for me today plans to prosper me and bless me. I'm not alone. I'm not going to walk through this day all by myself. You're with me. And I rejoice in that, in that knowledge, in that confidence. Fifthly, fifthly, I remind myself that death is no longer a threat to me. I used to be afraid of dying. I tried to cram a whole lot of life into every single day because I didn't want to miss anything because you never know when you're going to go. And now death is no longer a threat to me. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? You've lost it. Death now is what? A doorway to even a greater and fuller and more exciting joy that awaits me. I kind of look forward to dying. I want to die in a dramatic way and I'm witnessing to somebody. I want to just tell about Jesus. Actually, I'd like to be raptured while I'm witnessing to him. Joy. If we can remember these kinds of things, even in our deepest, darkest hours, even when things are not going well for us, we can experience a very sweet and blessed joy, which leads to praise and thanksgiving. So Jesus says, you know, I want my disciples to know the joy of being with me. I want them to know the joy of genuine fellowship and love and acceptance. Fasting would be totally inappropriate right now. And so he rejects it. But they propose fasting as some kind of religious work that they should be doing. And Jesus, in effect, bounces off of that. And he says, No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he says he will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. You don't, you don't take a, 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 a piece of new cloth and patch an old, threadbare, worn-out garment that is ready to be thrown out. You don't patch it. He says, because if you do that, that when you wash this old, threadbare, worn-out garment that's due for nothing except to be thrown out, it's already shrunk. That fabric doesn't have what it, ta what it takes to hold the new patch on it. And the whole thing becomes unusable. He says it's foolish. It's totally inappropriate. And he goes a step further. He says, and no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Old wineskins, meaning there were skins, they were already stretched out, they were brittle, they were hard, there was no more room. New wine gives off gas, expands a wineskin. So you required a new wineskin that had a certain elasticity that it would expand. But if you pour new wine into old wineskins that are already stretched out and brittle, they would break. You'd lose the wineskin and the wine. It's foolish. It's an absolute foolish activity. And so he goes on and he says, 
And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and the wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. He says, no, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. He's making a statement. He has not come to patch up Judaism. He's not come to just put a patch on the old religious ways. He's come to bring a brand new garment. The garment of righteousness, the garment of peace, peace with God, and the garment of joy. A brand new garment. Totally new. Totally new. But the Pharisees are proposing that they should be doing religious work, fasting. As was the custom of the Pharisees, they would fast every Monday and Thursday. Very religious. Read Matthew chapter 6. We'll get there when we get to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus doesn't prohibit fasting, but he does prohibit and tell his disciples, don't fast like the hypocrites do. The hypocrites, the Pharisees, the religious people, would stand on the street corners on Tuesdays and, or Mondays and Thursdays, their days of fasting, and they would put white powder on their face to make themselves look real gaunt and real spiritual. And they would wear old clothes, and they would stand there, and people would walk by and say, Ooh, they're fasting. Ooh, how spiritual. They did it for self-display. Self-display. Look how spiritual I am. Church, we don't involve ourselves in religious practices for the sake of displaying our own righteousness. We gather together. We enjoy fellowship. We pray. We study the scriptures. We reason together. We share the gospel with others. We give of our resources, our time, and our energy. Even when we fast, we do so for totally different motives. And those motives find their basis in God's love and grace to us. And as you know how, and as you learn how to respond to his love and grace, you will respond in kind. But it's so easy to slip back into our old motives, our own legalisms. Fasting is an excellent spiritual discipline. But for the right reasons. To ensure the fact that there are things in my life that don't become my master. If you just, you just tick down the list. There are things in our life that can very easily become master. Television, food, cigarettes, on and on and on. And people should deliberately fast to demonstrate the fact that they are master over these things, not these things over them. People people can fast as an expression of a repentant heart. God, I, I need to spend some time. I need a season of repentance. And, and, and I want to express that repentance through some physical means. And fasting is a wonderful means. But it's where is the heart? You may be in a season of mourning and grief and loss. Fasting is totally appropriate. Fasting is a wonderful uh, discipline spiritually for Bible study, for seasons, special seasons of prayer and Bible study. I found in my own life that as I fast, there is a certain physical weakening that occurs. And in the, in the context of that physical weakening, I've discovered 
that there, there is a heightened spiritual sensitivity. Heightened spiritual sensitivity. God's strength in my weakness. So I'll deliberately weaken myself with fasting. I'll deliberately expose myself because I want to draw closer to the Lord in my own subjective experience. In unison with the scriptures, study the Bible and prayer. Tremendous, tremendous purposes. But you don't stand out on the street corner. Jesus says, don't do it like the hypocrites. He says, wash your faces. Don't put powder on them. Wash them. Put a smile on. And don't tell anybody what you're doing. It's between you and your Father in heaven. So their fasting is an excellent discipline. But Jesus, again, doesn't come to support the religious system. He comes to bring a brand new way for us, and he comes that we might know his grace. And his grace does not come to us on the basis of our performing. It comes to us on the basis of faith. On the basis of faith. It's a free offer. Biblical Christianity, biblical Christianity is different from every other system of belief in the history of mankind. Biblical Christianity. There are lots of people who call themselves Christians. There are lots of cults who call themselves Christians. And they are not Christians by biblical definition. They're sincere people. They mean well but they are sincerely deceived. A couple of weeks ago in my neighborhood, it was a Saturday, and I was in my front yard. We put up a little basketball hoop for my son, and we were shooting baskets together. And there were, there were some people walking the neighborhood, going door to door, and I was watching, and they had an armload of books, so I figured there was some religious cult. I could hardly wait till they got to me. I live on a cul-de-sac, and down toward the end of the cul-de-sac, they were just making the bend. And, and we have some neighbors who live down there who come to our church. And, uh, and, and one, of the, one of the gals was, uh, who lives in the house was, was talking to these two women who were carrying the books around. And they were there for about 15, 20 minutes. I'm shooting baskets with my son, watching these guys, what's going on. And all of a sudden, I see my neighbor turn and point down towards me. <laughs> I said, okay, here we go. And then she brings them down to my house. So I welcome her. I said, oh, hi. You know, nice. We introduced and, and nice to meet and so forth. And she began to ask me if I'd read the Book of Mormon. They were Mormons. And she said, have you ever read the Book of Mormon? I said, yes, I have. I haven't studied it in depth, but I've read it. And uh, she says, she says, well, would you like a copy? I said, no, no, thank you. I already have a copy. And I said, I have a copy of this book and that book and that book and that book. And I said, do you know that the Book of Mormon is a, a compilation of lies? Do you know that it is a compilation of plagiarisms from other sources? Do you know that? And her little trainee, I was watching her trainee, or her trainee's eyes just went like that. <laughs> And then she just, she just, she wouldn't engage me at that level. So I said, may I ask you a question? She says, what? I said, are you a Christian? She says, why, yes. I said, you're a Christian. Wonderful. I said, what do you believe? How do you know that you're a Christian? I believe in Jesus Christ. Ooh, very good. 
I said, what Jesus Christ? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Yes, I do. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is God the Son? No. I said the Bible clearly states, Jesus' own words, he and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Apostle Paul categorically, doctrinally tells us that Jesus is God. The Old Testament testifies, and I, and I pulled out a Bible, and I showed her in Isaiah, and I showed her in Malachi, and I showed her where, where all the places where I saw her where Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. I said, you see, he's God. So if you don't believe that Jesus is God, then you don't believe in the God of the Bible, and you don't believe in, in, in the true Jesus Christ. Hence, you are not a Christian. I said, I said, I don't mean to insult you, but I want you to know that you are deceived. You've not done your homework. And I gave her a couple of names of some books. I said, I would encourage you to go get these books and read them and study and see if, in fact, what I'm saying is true. I said, after all, Luke in the book of Acts spoke of the Bereans who, when Paul came and preached to them, they were more noble than anybody. They searched the scriptures daily to see if that which Paul was telling them was true. Now, I would urge you, I said to her, be more noble than all of your other counterparts compatriots in your Mormon church, and you go check out what I'm saying and see if it isn't true. Biblical Christianity is not just another religion of rules and works. Biblical Christianity, beloved, is the expression of God's righteousness, peace, and joy in this world. God's righteousness, not ours. God's peace, not ours. God's joy, not ours. God's love poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that's given to us. Biblical Christianity. A brand new garment setting men free. Setting people free who are so frozen and so locked into performing, performing, performing in order to be accepted. And they come into the church and they pick up that same performing mentality and they got to go through all the works. You don't get baptized because well, you, you must, got to be baptized otherwise you're not saved. You get baptized to tell the world that you identify with Christ. It's in your heart. Communion is not just some empty religious work. Communion is a heartfelt, physical, external expression of an internal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ through his death on the cross. And you say, God, thank you. And Jesus, thank you for dying for me. When we give our money, it's not just some empty religious activity. It's because we acknowledge his grace to us in providing for us. And we return back a portion of that which he's given to us. So that what his kingdom can continue to move forward and grow. When we get together in fellowship. It's so that we can encourage and nurture one another on. Not I've, not I've got to go. I get to go. I can hardly wait.
in any service of God, in any ministry, how God has gifted you. And as you begin to pursue and serve, it's not out of an, a mentality that I must perform for God in order to keep his good grace. No, the basis of my performance is I already have his good grace. I'm already accepted by him. And I'm only performing in response because I love him. I serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Romans chapter 7, verse 6. I serve in the new way of the Spirit, not the old way of the written code. I put off the old life. I can't mix the old life with the new. No more one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world anymore. I put it all away. You can't pour new wine into old wineskins. Can't mix the old and the new. It's a whole new life. It's a whole new hope. A whole new world has opened up to us. Receive it. Glorify Him. Praise Him. Thank Him. Worship Him. Learn to be full of joy. Because of His grace to us. His unconditional acceptance. And His purpose to work in us as we just hang out with Him. <laughs> and He changes us. He changes us. He changes us. He changes us. We just hang out with him. Just like you hang out with somebody who you really admire and value and love, and you hang out with them, and the effect of their life begins to rub off on you, and you find yourself changing, becoming better and better. And better. You find yourself growing and maturing. You find yourself aspiring to the more beautiful things, the loftier things of life as this person. Just their life influences you just because you hang with them. Man, Friday night, sitting in the service. He was sat at my table at the Ferment Only yesterday. He said, I got to tell you, when you said last night, no more one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. When you said that those people are the most miserable people on the face of the earth, he said that cut into my heart like a knife. He said, how true. People who live with one foot in the world, one foot in the kingdom are the most miserable people on the face of the earth. Why? Because they know the world is going to pass away. They know the world really offers nothing to really truly satisfy. There's no real long-term satisfaction in the things of this world. It's only in the kingdom. And yet they won't give themselves fully to the kingdom. They're stuck. And they're the most miserable people in the world. No more mixing the old with the new. Throw it away. Trust God. Get into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Start partying with Jesus. Never mind what the legalists say. Never mind what the devil starts blowing in your ears. Say, get out of here. I love Jesus. And he and I are going to where the sinners are. He and I are going to go minister where the sinners are. He and I are going to go learn to love people and show acceptance and value. And we're not going to play church. We are church. A community of God-filled people. Joy-filled people. Amen? Amen? Pray with me. Father, thank you. Thank you for the grace that you shower on us. Thank you for your love and your care. 
Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for these examples in the scriptures. Lord, as you reject the rigidity and the legalism of the religious systems of the world, Lord, you call on us to recognize these very same things and our tendencies to them. Help us, Lord, to be mindful of these things and sensitive more and more and more to your graciousness in our lives. Father, we are thankful people this morning. I am a thankful man, and I love you. Blessed be your name, Lord. Strengthen us, encourage us, open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to these things and cause them to penetrate down deep inside of us. Lord, that we could be a refuge for those who are the outcasts and not, Lord, a whole bunch of legalists who live by the rules and impose those rules on others. Help us, Lord, to know your grace and to be able to communicate it clearly, Lord, and through our lives. Thank you, Father. Amen. We're going to sing a song, close the service. I want you to stand. When he rolls up his sleeves, he ain't putting on the Ritz. Our God is an awesome God. There's thunder in his footsteps and lightning in his fists. Our God is an awesome God. You see, the Lord, he wasn't joking when he kicked him out of Eden. It wasn't for no reason that he shed his blood. His return is very close, so you better be believing that our God is an awesome God. You are an awesome God.